0: Welcome to the ASC podcast, Cytopath Pod. Join special guests to highlight ASC activities in cytopathology education, advocacy, and research.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cytopath Podcast. My name is Beatrice Barakan, and I am the past president of the American Society of Cytopathology and the social media editor of our journal, Journal of American Society of Cytopathology. As a part of our interesting article series on this podcast, we have two amazing guests today Drs. Paul Vanderlaan and Mishia Nishino from the Department of Pathology in Beth Israel Decanus Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. Welcome to our pod, Dr. Van Der Lan and Dr. Nishina.
0: Kuliz, thank you so much for having us. This is great. Um, uh, Really looking forward to this this discussion and um, uh, all the tough questions can go straight to Machia, you know, because he's the brains of this operation.
1: (laughs) We got this. We got this. Have fun. Yeah, Yeah,
2: thanks so much for making this forum for us. You know, we're so excited to be here and delighted to to be chatting with you
1: today. Absolutely. And we're delighted to have both of you. Okay, for our listeners, I'm going to give a little bit of a... um, um, background of you guys. I figured after looking at both of your CVs, if I went into depth, we'll be here for three hours, so I won't do that, but I'll give a little bit of an introduction so everybody knows who you are. Dr. Vanderland received his MD and his PhD in molecular pathogenesis and molecular medicine from the University of Chicago. He completed his residency in anatomic pathology, as well as a fellowship training in cytopathology, and cardiothoracic and autopsy pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He currently serves as the director of cytopathology and the director of thoracic pathology at the Beth Israel Decanus Medical Center. He's also an associate professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School. His primary clinical and academic interests include cytopathology, cardiothoracic pathology, quality assurance and quality improvement in the cytopathology laboratory and molecular testing. Dr. Nishino, um, our other guest, received his MD and his PhD in cellular and molecular biology from uh, Baylor College of Medicine. He completed his residency in anatomic and clinical pathology, as well as fellowship training in cytopathology at Massachusetts General Hospital. He currently serves as the director of head and neck pathology and is the program director of the Cytopathology Fellowship Program at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and is also an associate assistant professor uh, at Harvard Medical School. His primary clinical and academic interests include cytopathology and surgical pathology of the thyroid, salivary gland, head and neck tumors, as well as the application of molecular testing in these settings. So today's article is Molecular Testing Results as a Quality Metric for Evaluating Cytopathologists' Utilization of the Atypia of Undetermined Significance Category for Thyroid Nodule uh, Finatal Aspirations. This article is available online at the Journal of American Society of Cytopathology website. The link is also uh, available in this podcast. If you click below the podcast, you'll be able to get to the um, article there too. So um, as a cytopathology director, quality assurance and improvement and the eternal and perpetual problem of atypia is always on my mind. So I was going to ask Dr. Vanderland, can you set the scene for us and tell us about how this fabulous paper was conceived?
0: Wow. Wow. Great. Um, yeah, uh, gulies we must be kindred spirits, you know, fighting <laughs> the battle against Atypia. Yes. We, we, you know, we can get into that. Um, something, you know, I've been thinking a lot about recently. But yeah, the, you know, this paper. Um, uh, so so uh, if I if I rewind a little bit, you know, uh, thyroid fna was kind of my first foray into cytology back uh when i was a fellow uh at the brigham working with uh ed sebus and jeff crane and did a lot of that and then kind of you know drifted um i guess south to the lungs uh over where i've spent the last uh, number of years but you know with uh, my involvement in the the upcoming third edition of the bethesda system for reporting thyroid cytopathology, pathology kind of came back home to to thyroid and you know so i've been thinking a lot about it and um you know, uh, amongst the things that we think about is is how, you know, how should we be practicing, you know, what, as a lab director, you know, trying to provide, you know, feedback to the cytopathologist in a confidential way, how do we know, you know, we're practicing in line with um, uh, with each other, you know, in a laboratory as well as, um, you know, with kind of national uh, benchmarks and standards and so you know, you, you have traditional uh, reporting methods of just, you know, what is your AUS rate? You know, are you above that 10% that the second edition of the Bethesda recommends? Um, but, you know, that really doesn't tell you why. If you if you exceed it, it doesn't tell you why you're above that. And so, you know, we just started to think about it and kind of formulate some thoughts. And, you know, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And... One of the most impactful QA papers that I came across uh, when I was a fellow is, you know, it's, it's this famous, you know, um, American uh, MJ uh, ClinPath paper by Cebus, you know, of the, you know, combining the, for PAPS, the high risk HPV uh, uh, results with the ASCUS to sil ratio. And by looking at those two variables, you can really explain quite well cytopathologist behavior. And so, you know, I... Uh, haven't had an original idea you know for years and so i was like well what if we took that mo- that model and kind of apply it to thyroid fna's and 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 we we looked at our data set and kind of went from there and and you know obviously you know having this bouncing around in my mind you know went to machia you know our head neck and thyroid expert uh in our department and and you know got his thoughts and and lo and behold you know uh this was one of the fastest papers to come together um you know having a great collaborator like machia and uh and this is what we have here so so that that's kind of the 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 origin story for this uh for this paper
2: wow
1: wow and i must say i love that paper that you quoted from dr Sibas a number of years back what a seminal nice paper yeah
0: classic yeah
1: yeah Okay, so Dr. Nishia, tell us um, about the workflow in your laboratory in terms of the molecular testing. What happens when a diagnosis of AUS is given? Is AUS a reflex test? What molecular tests are performed in your laboratory? And uh, you know, are there other um, molecular tests that are, are available? Are these send out tests and so forth?
2: So a yeah, little bit of a loaded question, no, but- No, no, no. no, no, no. You know, when it comes to thyroid and molecular testing, I, I'm bottomless well, because, you know, I love talking about it. Love it, love it. But, you know, I'll also just step back a little bit. You know, when I finished Cytology Fellowship back in 2013, you know, molecular testing for thyroid FNAs was uh, just coming into use commercially. And, you know, there were papers coming out, I think 2012 was a seminal paper from the Verisite group about the analytical and then the clinical validation of the Affirma tests, And around that time, you know, cytology labs and endocrinologists were, you know, j- starting to think about how to use this test in the most appropriate and cost-effective ways. And to determine that, you know, apart from the, you know, the very contained uh, analytic and clinical validation studies, we needed real-world data. And so a- around that time, you know, we worked with our IRB to just start collecting, you know, data prospectively, you know, on, you um, you know, how we use these molecular tests. So basically, you know, when do we use it, you know, for the the cytologically indeterminate cases, you know, do we, you know, do a repeat FNA and so forth. So we collected that information along with Histologic follow up for those cases that went to surgical resection, and longitudinal clinical follow up for the patients who did uh, not undergo a clinical resection. And we used that database to start answering some of the the unknowns. You know, so our endocrinologists, especially, wanted to know, um, you know, what are ways that we can refine our selection criteria, so only those nodules that really need uh, a testing would undergo uh, testing, and so forth. And you know, we used that data to start answering those questions, and then around that time you know paul uh, came to me with this you know i think really interesting idea about how can we you know leverage this sort of data for uh, quality assurance uh, purposes and you know and you know borrowing from the ideas uh, of the pap test and and hpv testing as he mentioned and you know you know we kind of went back and forth about how you know there are some parallels you know between thyroid cytology and and pap tests, you know, the pathogenic mechanisms are clearly very different, but, you know, there is an indeterminate kind of wishy-washy category, you know, that we use called AUS so that, um, you know, we can keep the negative and the positive categories very pure. And then there is a somewhat binary, you know, molecular test, you know, HPV, uh, high-risk HPV testing for PAPS and you know a Firma test that are offered a kind of a binary benign versus suspicious result, so we thought you know could we use that as kind of a, a model and start um, you know analyzing you know how to how to do benchmark quality you know among thyroid FNAs and just to go back to your question, please about our our workflow you know we have a two-staged process, so our endocrinologists generally collect. Uh, thyroid FNAs for cytology only uh, on on the first pass at a nodule, and for those that are classified as uh, Bethesda 3 or Bethesda 4 and cytologically indeterminate, those patients are brought back for a repeat FNA, mm-hmm. and the cytology of the repeat FNA uh, guides whether that concurrent sample collected for affirma testing is sent out.
1: Mm-hmm. I see, I see. And it's a firma testing solely used in your laboratory as a send out test, right? correct?
2: Primarily. Yeah. Uh, that's the main test that's used. We have, uh, uh- interventional radiologists and some endocrinologists who will collect uh, samples for thyrosite testing as well. So we have uh, some experience with that as well.
1: I see. Okay. All right. So we'll come to that in a little bit too. So uh, just sort of paraphrasing what you have in your paper, your overall ATP rate was between 11.6 to 39.3%, with a laboratory mean of uh, 22.3. And the And a total FNA count in those five years that you looked at your um, uh, thyroid FNAs was 3,008. So prior to molecular testing, um, you know, what were you doing in terms of quality control metrics? And, you know, how do you handle the verification bias, meaning not all AUS cases are undergoing surgery? And how could you handle that? And, you know, back to Paul, what do you think?
0: Yeah, yeah, great question. So. You know, really the gold standard for, for most, you know, cytohistologic correlation is that surgical, you know, the surgical follow-up. So when that nodule is removed, what is, what does it turn out to be? And... Um, you know, that is the gold standard. But as you alluded to, for AUS, something that's kind of plagued this category for a long time is that not all AUS nodules are created equal, not all go to surgery. And you could argue that those that do go to surgery probably had some more, you know, worrisome clinical or radiographic features that might bias or, you know, kind of skew the data set or, you know, it ele- it artificially elevate the risk of malignancy for that category. And so um, and and the other thing I'd like to, to, to mention is that, you know, for laboratory, uh, you know, QA type procedures and to gather the statistics and the data, it can be very, very labor intensive, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, ideally you would want somebody you would want to have, you know, the statistician, you know, furiously working in the background, you know, c- collecting and, uh, you know, compiling all of the surgical follow up data that honestly, you know, since it's such a labor intensive of task, you know, we really only get around to doing that when we want to publish when we want to look at a data set when you know your it's, it's the you know the juice is worth the squeeze you know so to speak and so so that really begs the question of if you can't do that is there a surrogate endpoint you can use and this is something that you know as as you know physicians as, as people in medicine we're all very familiar with you know um, uh, when new lipid lowering uh, agents or statins came onto the market right Ultimately, you know, overall survival and disease free survival is the key outcome, but that takes years and decades to, you know, get to that point. And so, what is the impact on LDL cholesterol and lipid levels, right? It's a surrogate endpoint that is correlated with outcome, but it's not perfect. And so, really, molecular testing has kind of afforded the opportunity to have a surrogate, quote unquote, endpoint um, that's much easier to obtain that is, um, Uh, uh, binary in nature right it's either you know positive or negative or suspicious or not Um, and that really facilitates its use as a you know a quality metric uh, in the laboratory it's easier to get it's binary um, and again uh, you're not spending you know tons and tons of time just getting the data you know to to have an internal QA type program Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah Totally agree, yeah. I mean, ideally, you would like to get an endpoint, a surgical pathology report for every ATP you got, but in reality, one, you're never going to get it because not all ATPs are going to be operated on, and two, even if they did, that would be such an onerous task that it's almost impossible to do, and therein lies the issues of the uh, quality improvement problems, right? Absolutely. Uh,
2: I'll I'll just add... Oh, yes, sorry to interrupt. No, I'll, I'll just add just... Uh, adding on to what Paul has said, you know, in this era when so many um, atypical thyroid FNAs or indeterminate thyroid FNAs uh, do undergo molecular testing and that molecular testing itself influences the decision to undergo surgical resection, uh, it, it, there's going to be an additional level of bias as well. So, uh, you know, using molecular you know, as well as you know, histologic endpoints you know, together in concert can really uh, you know, improve, you know, I, I think, give more clinically meaningful uh, estimates of uh, cancer risk and, and laboratory quality.
1: Very good, which uh, feeds right into our next question to do, Dr. Nishino. Um, what do you think uh, this study would, would it hold true if we were to use other molecular studies other than AFIRMA? What if you had thyrasek, thyramir, or other even homebrew tests in your laboratory? Um, how would that work and how would that look like? Or has anyone actually done something like this?
2: Yeah, you, you know, I think the answer to that question will be predicated on whether the tests that you're using have been clinically validated and to and found to have a high negative predictive value, and uh, you know Thyroseek, uh, you know Firma, Thygenix, and Thyromir, the com- combined uh, testing approach, you know, have all been uh, clinically validated at their respective uh, companies to to have a very high negative predictive value, where a negative test result, you know, approaches the uh the risk of malignancy you know associated with a cytologically benign aspirate so as as long as that high negative predictive value is there then you can sort of envision a binary test result where you either have a test negative result or some test uh, uh you know test abnormal result i guess you could say um in reality a lot of these molecular tests are not really binary and right. especially the ones with uh, genotyping uh, it, uh, as a part of the panel, you know, offers a gradient of cancer risk, you know, depending on the, the type of alterations that are identified. But, you know, for quality purposes, I, I think having a negative versus you know, abnormal result is is definitely helpful, you know, akin to what we do with high-risk HPV testing in cervical Paps.
1: Exactly. So binary is the key, whats what you're saying. If you have the equivocal tests in these uh, molecular tests, or if it's... Uh you know, different uh, mutations, it might not hold true for um, quality control metrics.
2: It, it certainly helps with the statistical analysis to have binary yeah. binary outcomes. And, you know, I think the reality is much more complex, you know, both from a molecular testing standpoint mm-hmm. and also from histological endpoints. And I think Paul and I have often talked about how, you know, the histologic endpoint in thyroid cancer or, or thyroid neoplasia are really not binary. And there's a spectrum of of you know different levels of aggressiveness in thyroid tumors, ranging from you know, what we call indolent cancers to ones that are much more aggressive. So, uh, the the binary uh, paradigm is is you know doesn't reflect reality in many cases, but it's useful from uh, kind of kind of a laboratory benchmarking standpoint. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and kind of kind of a long uh, I'll riff on that as well. Coming back to cytology, right? So in cytology you know our clinicians are looking for a binary answer right is it positive is it negative right and and we strive we really do strive to give that binary answer because that gives clarity and direction to the the next steps in management but again as pathologists here we all know that the you know qualitative and quantitative you know qu- uh, you know uh, qualities of that sample might you know preclude a definitive diagnosis uh, all the time and so hence we have those indeterminate categories and and you know we've done a great job of risk stratifying and kind of defining and putting walls around what belongs and what does not belong in those indeterminate categories and what the risk of malignancy is and what the potential next steps are you know in in some organ systems especially you know thyroid is very very well laid out but um there's so many de- so basically my my, my take-home point here is there's so many degrees of freedom right so not only on the cytology end there's a lot of de- there's a lot of variability um, on the surgical endpoint there's potential uh, degrees of freedom and then in the molecular testing right um, uh, again it's nice if you have that binary answer but uh, with some tests especially if you're done in-house right a BRAF mutation is a little different than an, a RAS-like mutation you know with with regard to absolute risk of malignancy slash neoplasia.
1: Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, So, well, here's another question for individuals who are listening to this podcast. What are some practical implications of using molecular testing as quality control or quality assurance metric? And more importantly, what would you recommend laboratories with low numbers of molecular testing um, to use? And I, you know, ever since I read your article, I was thinking about that for my laboratory, where we don't really have a very high number of molecular testing for one reason or another. But this would be so nice to use it. And so, what to do? Tough one.
0: Another great question. Yeah, I guess I'll jump in here. Um, and and the first thing, I'll take a little bit of a a little bit of a detour. You know, kind of pull off the highway just a little bit, but. Thank you. when, whenever you're looking at the numbers, whenever you're looking at statistics and, and, and whatnot, you really have to be careful and make sure that you're looking at a large enough s- sample set. Your, your N is large enough to make meaningful you know, conclusions. And, you know, this is something that I've actually struggled a little bit with as a laboratory director, giving the confidential feedback to the cytopathologists, um, because... For PAPs, you know, the, the highest volume thing that we all look at in, in cytology, I'm sure we could give a, you know, a quarterly or an every six month, you know, feedback on, you know, ASCUS to ratio, high risk HPV positivity rate of of, of ASCUS, etc. And it would be meaningful and you would not be reacting to noise in the data. But unfortunately, for some non-GYN specimens, you know, I think thyroids uh, are, are one of the highest volumes in most. Uh, laboratories, the highest uh, volume non guine specimens. So, you know, maybe, yeah, you could get away go- a with giving, you know, Q6 month feedback on on levels. But if you think about it, you know, how many weeks are you on service? How many thyroids do you see? If you have a 10% AUS rate, you know, and you see 100 thyroids or you only have 10 AUSs of those that go to surgery, maybe only three do. And so you start to really narrow down that that pie. And, and, and then if you try to extrapolate meaningful conclusions from it. Like, oh my goodness, you know, last six months I had a 30% AUS rate, and this month I had a 5% AUS rate. But if you're only seeing, you know, 30 thyroid f as you know, per per six months or whatever, you know, it doesn't, it's not meaningful. So so my, my, my point here is saying that you have to look at your practice setting, you have to look at you know, your volumes and decide what is the right interval to analyze the data. Is it six months? Is it yearly? Is it is it, you know, uh, every two years, et cetera, in order to have meaningful conclusions on trends. Um, with that being said, so then coming back to your question, Glees, about molecular testing right if you don't have high volumes molecular testing in your laboratory you know for thyroid for uh, whatever uh, other uh, uh, you know pancreatic cysts you know uh, molecular testing there um, you know you it might not be a useful quality metric to incorporate into your laboratory so there are limitations and you have to again have a a keen eye on what your practice setting is what your um, laboratory can do um, and what makes sense because again you don't want to collect data just for the for the sake of collecting data it should be meaningful it should be impactful um, and likewise you don't want to report that data to individuals in a confidential way or you know have dashboards where you're looking at your dashboard you know every five minutes like you're checking your you know you're checking your stock charts or your 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 bitcoin values right (laughs) there needs to be some you know some buffer between and some distance between um uh you know your averages your levels and your day-to-day practice so just some kind of random thoughts there i don't know magia if you have any other thoughts or anything else to add there
2: yeah, you know, I, I just remember uh, when we were talking about uh, our, our paper, you know, we had talked about, um, you know, your prior study with Jeff and and, and Ed with the, and um, uh, I think with Andrew, Andy Renshaw about the, the ASK uh, malignant ratio, and, you know, could that be something, uh, you know, parallel to the ask acyl ratio that, uh, that that we investigate, and um, a- along those lines, there's a recent paper from Cornell uh, in Cancer Cytopathology, you know, looking at the ASK, uh or i'm sorry the aus to malignant ratio uh, and then correlating that with the molecular testing results so i i think uh there, there's a number of ways that um you can try to to uh to give that iterative feedback to your cytopathologists um and you know perhaps you know as we gain some data from the the molecular testing we could uh Refine how we use something like the AUS to malignant ratio, and even for practices, you know, internationally that do not uh, use molecular testing, you know, as much as we do in North America, you know, we could get some more. Um, perhaps you know that kind of metric would get more traction. Mm-hmm. Purely cytology based.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, As as you said, one size does not fit all. So laboratories are different from one another, as are you know human beings. And you're right, Paul, you know, sometimes people check on it like their um, stocks. <laughs> what is my atypia, right? And they're all very worried, you know, to make sure everything's all hunky-dory. And some are like, well, you know what? I'm just going to call it atypical and that's all there is to it. Which then brings me uh, to my last question. And it's a tough one. So identifying the problem, meaning you know high AUS rates, and you can extrapolate that into any organ system. But in your case, it's the AUS rates uh, due to an overcall or undercall or mixture. This is great. And by the way, I should say that I love figure five and how you separated those uh, under colors, over or mixed uh, groups. And for the listeners, I highly recommend you download the article, even if it is just to admire figure five, which is beautiful. Uh, But the question here is, Okay, now you can identify the problem, but how do you deal with or work through the human psychology aspect of lowering atypia? Meaning, how do you gently nudge someone to reduce his or her atypia and still be as accurate as possible and not feel trapped and uh, you know, not feel that they have to call something benign or suspicious in order to not to fall into the atypia? Of course, there are things you could do in terms of like, you know, multi-headed microscopes looking at it together and whatnot, but you know, how do you deal with individual psychologies about reducing that atypia?
0: Man, ghoulies, you are bringing the heat. What great questions, man! Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, a couple of points there. Um, um, I think that you know, first off, um, just knowing, knowing i am i i am using air quotes here—knowing there's a problem is the first you know step towards fixing it, right? And so, one of the great things about you know having, in my mind, you know, kind of confidential feedback to the cytopathologist is that they can look and see, hmm. These are my averages. This is my AUS rate. This is how the lab compares. These are the benchmarks. Huh. You know, and that might induce a little self-reflection of, okay, maybe I am too aggressive at calling AUS, or, oh, maybe I'm not using it enough. And just knowing that there is an issue, I think, is, is helpful. And and as an anecdote there, um, so when, you know, when the pair system uh, came out, uh, you know, we had, at, at the BI, had, uh, and, and still do struggle, we have a very high... Over, lab average, um, atypical rate for the urines, just like Hopkins, just like a lot of other places. Um, and after, you know, before, um, uh, so so in the past, before Paris, you know, we really weren't giving that confidential feedback regularly to cytopathologists. And so once we alerted that, you know, and, and we actually published on this in JASC a while ago, you know, we dropped our our overall lab atypical rate from 30% to 20%, you know, just just knowing, hey, Paris is out there, you know, this is this is, and this is what does not constitute atypia, and these are our rates, you know, because if you think about it, um, uh, you know, oh my gosh, 30% atypical rate, that's so high. But if you have a, you know, a tray of slides, you know, 10, if you're looking at 10 urines, you know, one half tray of slides, It's not very hard to have three of those 10 called atypical, right? And so, um, you, you know, so I think that my what I'm saying and rambling on here is that, you know, just giving that feedback is really the first step. And. And then what so then what other methods measures can you take you know there's this great you know um uh, paper that came out of university of michigan a couple of years a, a number of years ago um how to lower AUS rate. Um, show it around you know and they showed that if you if you show your aus cases you can have a significant drop in your aus rate and so that's a simple solution there um and as, you know, Machia and I, and also the, 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 um, the group out at New York um, uh, uh, alluded to in the cancer cytopathology paper, you know, using these somewhat advanced metrics, not just the, the percentage of AUS cases, but, you know, AUS in relation to the molecular testing, it, it again explains why, you know, so why... Might you have a high AUS rate and how can you correct it in a, in a logical fashion? Because you don't want just to have somebody screaming at you, lower your, your atypical rate, you know, but you don't know why it's high. And so really our goal with this paper um, is to have a thoughtful evaluation of why a rate might be high and how you can take those steps to fix it. Um, again, not, you know, not chastising somebody, not punishing somebody for, for having a high rate, but in general, we want reproducibility, you know, within a laboratory, within cytopathology in, as a whole, a whole, right? So if a if a biopsy is read at the BI, if it's read at Loyola, if it's read at Hopkins, whatever, we all we want to have the same answer, you know, pretty much. And so I think that those are some of the steps, you know, that we can take um, uh, to lower that atypical rate. Uh, Magia, any anything I missed or any other thoughts?
2: No, you know, I completely agree with everything you said, and you know, as the uh, I, you know being on the 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 other end you know you see, uh, receiving that feedback you, you know as a kid who grew up in the 80s you know and watching GI Joe you know uh, knowing is half the battle right so um, getting that uh, the feedback every uh, you know every six months you know about what our rates are and and you know how they correspond to to laboratory averages and and national averages in, in the case of PAPS is 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 super helpful you know for um, Giving us some insight into what our our pra- practice patterns are, and you, you know, you hit the the nail on the head when you said that you know showing cases around can be one way to to arrive at a more definite definitive diagnosis. You know, if um, people have different uh tendencies, you know, for for why they use you know AUS, you know, showing multiple people, you know, when you're inclined to use that category and uh seeing if they they can help you kind of bend that uh, sample into one of the more definitive categories of the Bethesda system, you know, I, I found to be a, a, a good way, you know, to, you know, help decrease my personal uh AUS rate when I'm when I'm faced with that situation. So, yeah, no, I I think that iterative feedback, very helpful uh, as the, you know, as one of the practicing cytopathologists in the group.
1: Sounds good. You know, one of the things I do is when I'm signing out and I feel like I'm going to call it atypical, I try to imagine the patient and I'm in a room with the patient and I'm telling the patient it's atypical and trying to explain that situation, which is very difficult to do, by the way, having Mm -hmm. done that. Uh, So then that kind of makes me draw back and then... Can I like put it in one bin or the other, aside from the atypia bin? If at that point that still doesn't help, then you know, showing, some, showing a friend, and especially if it's uh, late in the day and I'm tired with my decision-making, making sure that I look at it again tomorrow morning before I sign it out as atypical would be the couple of uh, little tricks up my sleeve, if I can possibly do it as a pathologist. But, you know, as, as a director, it's sometimes difficult, uh, you know, to reduce the overall atypia rate just because of what we have you know, discussed about. Yeah,
2: tough one. But yeah, I love that. You know, those are it's really practical, you know, ways to, to kind of approach the uh, uh, lowering the, the atypia rate. And um, yeah, yeah, I think that's great.
0: Yeah, yeah lo- lo- love those thoughts. And, and Guliz, I'm going to grab your moderator mic just for a first second because I, I... Take it away. I, yeah, yeah. So I... Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you you remember um, uh, at uh, the uh, ASC meeting, you know, in Vegas last November. Uh, you know, again, Machia, you know, chaired this this great session, the state of the art session. Beautiful, on, beautiful. You know, patient quality, and and we talked about this, and you know, and, and I gave a, a talk, uh, you know, about you know thyroid FNAs and QA, and, and and you know some of the themes that we've been talking about, and and this. uh, So I'm sure you remember this. So Paul Lahori from Pittsburgh, you know, got up and asked this really insightful question. And I'm, you know, confessing to the world right now. This has been a splinter in my mind for the last, you know, four or five months. And, you know, he asked, what does it matter if you have a high atypical rate if there is a defined clinical management for that diagnostic category? And I'm like, man, that's it's a great question, right? Because I remember
1: that incident. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. And and in. You know, in the Bethesda, right, we have, you know, because we have a very well stratified risk of malignancy, we have, uh, you know, appropriate next steps, be it, you know, repeat FNA, repeat FNA with molecular testing. You know, the clinicians know how to deal with it. So is a high atypical rate a bad thing? And I would love to get your thoughts on it. But again, it reminded me, Goulies, when you said, you know, we have to tell the patient you know directly or indirectly you know i i don't i don't know i I don't know if this is benign or malignant it's indeterminate right and so and, and getting back to some of the earlier themes that we were talking about right we want to give our clinicians a very direct you know positive negative binary you know clear answer and 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 again i don't so the other thing i've been thinking about is that i think that we don't want to devalue based cytomorphology mm-hmm. in favor of molecular testing yes, yes molecular yes. testing is that you know reflex test for a lot of aus cases and does help stratify them much like hpv testing does for ascus cases right um but not but we don't want you know we don't want it to be molecular testing first cytology second kind of yeah. like the you know primary hpv testing you know cytology exactly. second. second another story altogether. But. You know, again, I think that we can do so much with good cytomorphology, with good diagnostic criteria to avoid a lot of these atypical. So, so again, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Goulez and Natia, on, on why a high atypical rate is a bad thing if you know exactly what to do with them.
1: That, that is a very good question. And I have thought about that, too, you know, after um, Paul asked that question. Um, you know... In some ways, perhaps it isn't because you know what you're doing. But in the other sense, if you are the patient, imagine you are the patient and you're getting an atopia diagnosis. And what does atopia mean? I mean, they don't even know what that means. Maybe they're Googling it. And the first thing that comes up is, atopia, do you have cancer question mark, right? Oh my God, I have cancer, I'm gonna die, might be the first thought process. Is that really the message that you want to give? And think of this, again, if you are calling 50% atypia on something on your FNA or your urine, well, why should they do that FNA or that urine test anymore? Or they could just flip a coin and maybe they'll get a more accurate answer. So you don't want to alienate the clinicians you're working with. You don't want to scare the patient you are serving for. And, you know, more importantly, like you have to be a little bit more decisive because just like you said, cytomorphology is important. We're all trained with this, we know this. So if you can actually come to a certain point um, with the cytomorphology and actually give a more accurate diagnosis, it is cheaper and more efficient. This way you're not gonna require molecular testing in all these cases and nothing is for free in this world and neither are molecular testing. So they're gonna have to pay all that money either from out of pocket or insurance and that insurance, high insurance bills are gonna increase. We're all gonna have to end up paying more insurance if this happens. So you have to practice. You're not in a uh, vacuum. You're practicing with everybody else with everything else. So bottom line, if you don't carry your weight, somebody else will kick you off and then they will continue. Do we want that? Do we want molecular taking over all the morphology? I don't. (laughs) I'm a cytopathologist. I'm a morphologist. I love my job and I want to make sure we're here. That's my take. Mishia, what do you say?
2: Yeah, no, that's that's so beautifully stated. And and, and I completely agree with with all the reasons that you mentioned. And, you know, I, I think I always think about the cost yeah, as well. You know what is the most appropriate use of these tests, and you know how can we use, you know, both cytomorphology, you know, what we're trained to do, as well as you know other clinical and sonographic factors to to really limit the use of those testing to uh, those cases that are are going to, to benefit from it the most.
1: Great, great. Well, you guys, this was a wonderful discussion. Um, is there any anything else that you would um, want to say about your paper, or um, quality control, or molecular, um, as a parting point with our listeners?
2: Well, I just want to say thanks to Jask, you know, and and also to the ASC for the the opportunity, you know, to to publish it there, and uh, you know, really. Uh, just hope it reaches a wide audience and um, spark some uh, conversation you know, about how we can you know, improve the way that we practice thyroid cytology.
1: That sounds good. That's our hope, too. Yes?
0: Yeah, yeah, Galees, Uh You know, Jask is a fine journal. It's a fine journal. And uh, uh, <laughs> we're, you know, I, I, I was grinning ear to ear when you when you said just the aesthetics and, you know, the figure five and it looks beautiful because that's, it you is. know, it, it, nothing. Nothing is better than reading a paper that not only is impactful and clearly written, but is aesthetically pleasing. You know, and um, and so uh, thank thank you for that. And yeah, you know, thank you for this session. You know, it's it, it's it's great to to chat. You know, with with two amazing cytopathologists. Um. Uh. For for those listening, there were some fist pumps. You know, going on when Goulez was going <laughs> on. We are cytopathologists. We are you know, morphologists. You know, and. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the, this this balance between, you know, the, the technological advances, the molecular testing, and the power that it brings really, you know, that should be balanced, uh, you know, with the traditional um, cytomorphology because nothing is faster and cheaper than making a smear and looking at, you know, looking at a slide under the microscope. Um, so it's exciting. It's exciting to see where this will go. And hopefully, you know, this paper and others, you know, will, will spark, you know, kind of, Increased creativity, increased ways to look at our practice patterns, increased ways of looking at uh, different statistics in the laboratory to, you know, create some meaningful feedback and, um, uh, again, to, to help cytopathologists perform the way that they intend to. So.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you both very much. I really appreciate you um, both coming on and spending this afternoon with me. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Gules. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Cytopath Pod. You can reach ASC on Twitter at Cytopathology or via email at ASC at cytopathology.org.